The sermon text this morning is from Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You know, when she was reading that, my first thought, if I were honest, was, I thought it when I was reading it this week was, gracious Paul, could you have said it a little bit easier? Sometimes in Romans, it seems circular and confusing. And it um, didn't surprise me when I read a few weeks back about uh, the book of Romans was used at Harvard University, at least back in the day, to train lawyers how to think. And you can see how it would be useful for that. Uh, well, the, the way I think to understand this passage is probably set it in the context of the whole book and, and just do a quick flyover of the book. You know, when you think about the book of Romans, uh, really fundamentally it's trying to answer one question, and that is how can a man or a woman be made right with God? You know, how can we be made right with God? Now, that's a question I think that most of us will get to in life. Uh, it may be older age, it may be a, a note from the doctor that you're not well, but when we begin to try to come to terms with, with our lives as they are and the failure and the guilt that we have, the question comes is, am I right with God? And I think that's what Paul's driving at. And his answer is, the way to get right with God is through the gospel. But before he explains the gospel, he moves in the first three chapters in a way to help us understand why we need the gospel. So in the first three chapters, Paul is really teaching us, instructing us, that all of us, male or female, young or old, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, that we're all lawbreakers. We've all broken the law. The creator of the universe, we have opposed by breaking his law. Now you may say, well, I didn't know that there was a law. I mean, I wasn't instructed in a religious home, and I don't know about a law. But you know, in chapter 2, he said that we all have that law upon our hearts. We, we all kind of know what we ought to do, and we haven't done it, or we know what we should not do, and we've done that. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote his book, Mere Christianity, and it really dealt with, why do we get in line at a bank? There are certain things that we know to do intuitively. And, and Paul says, that's your conscience, that's a law, and we've all broken it. We've all been lawbreakers. We all stand at odds with God. And so Paul paints us kind of in a corner, and then he introduces the gospel. And the gospel is this good news that God 
who is so rich in mercy, would provide a son, Jesus, who would come and dwell with us, like us, and he would live a life that was without sin, so that God could look at his life and say, I am well pleased. He is fully righteous. And yet he also takes upon himself our sins and our shame and our guilt. And he bears God's wrath for that. So that now, through faith in Jesus, we are what's called justified. We are declared innocent. We're free. We're free from the penalty of sin. And this is what Paul moves to at the end of chapter 3. And then in 4 and 5, he begins to tease out what this, what this life is, this justification by faith. What faith is, he looks at Abraham in chapter 5. We're no longer the children of Adam, but now we're children of God through Jesus. So the first five chapters of the book of Romans, he's really talking how to be right with God. This is how it's done, through faith in Christ, we've been justified. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he begins to move on how then do we live this life? How do we live in this world as children of God? And you know over the past two weeks, We've looked at how, how the gospel crushes the dominion of sin. In other words, sin does not drive us anymore. We still have indwelling sin. We still struggle with the things of this life. But Christ has, has brought the power of sin and, and has broken it. And remember, remember how we talked about last week that, we, that if he has broken the power of sin, we shouldn't continue in it anymore. He said that we were not under law, but we were under grace. And of course, that raises the issue, well, what do, we do with, what do we do with the law then? If we've been forgiven of sin and we're made right with God, then what does the Christian do with the law? I think that's what the passage is speaking about. In these first six verses, it really finishes out chapter six, if you will. This and next week, we look at the nature of what do we, what's a Christian do with the law? Do we obey it? Do we observe it? Do we ignore it? What should we do? I think Paul's going to tell us this. But it's kind of a confusing passage, and so let me tell you the, the order in which I'm going to go. You're going to see in verse 1 the principle that Paul gives. Paul gives a certain principle that simply is this, that death cancels a law. Death cancels a law. That's a principle we're going to see. And then you're going to see the illustration. He gives us a picture of the principle. He helps us see what it looks like in real life. And he talks about a marriage. And then in 4 to 6, he applies this principle to our life. And you see that in verse 4, where it says, likewise you also. He's, he's bringing the principle to bear on our lives. And we'll go through that, and then I'll just give you some takeaways. I, I, I hope it's going to be helpful for you, particularly if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, how we deal with the law. So, so let's look at the principle. Notice how he begins in verse 1. He says, or do you not know? Uh, I, I do appreciate Paul. Uh, this is the third time he's asked us, don't you know this? We do forget. We do miss things. I, I mean, I tend to forget things, and so it's helpful to know. There is the implied kind of, you should know these things. I have told you, but, but I appreciate the gentleness with which he does it. He's clarifying things for us. He says, don't you know, brothers, we're friends. I mean, he wants our betterment. He wants our flourishing. And so he's taking the time to explain this to us. Now notice the first word, though, is or. <clears throat> you know, or kind of reminds us, this is still part of the argument in chapter 6. We're going back. Do you remember Paul last week? He faced these opponents. 
these Jewish opponents were coming up to Paul and they're saying, you know, we love this gospel of grace. You can imagine if you're Jewish, you're a Christian now, but you've been steeped in the importance of the law. And so these opponents were going to Paul and saying, we love this gospel of grace, but you're saying we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Well, that, that's just going to give liberty to sin. I mean, if you take laws off of people, it's anarchy. As I mentioned last week, if you take down the speed limit signs on 540, it really becomes a freeway. I mean, people will feel free to drive any way they want. I, I mean, all, all stops come off. And that's the threat that these Jewish opponents were kind of bringing to Paul. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. Not being under law and being under grace doesn't lead to sin. And we explained that last week. Because you can sin, you can sin yourself back into slavery. But what Paul's doing is he's taking the argument further and he's saying, not only does it not lead us to sin, but he's going to now explain what role the law has in the life of the believer. He's going to explain our relationship to the law. In other words, why, what does it mean that we've been delivered or we've been freed from the law? You heard that over and over again. By the way, when it says there in verse 1, he says, the law is binding on the person as long as he lives. That word for binding means the law acts as a, as a master, the, the, the law acts as kind of a, an authority over us. And so the principle in verse 1 is simply this, that death frees us from the law. That's what he's saying. The law is no longer binding on those who have died. It is binding on those who are alive. Now, you know this to be true. I mean, if you think about an alleged criminal who's caught, and he's caught, though he's dead, they drop the case. Or if someone owes you $10,000, and before they've paid you, they die of a heart attack. You're not going to get the money out of them. I mean, you may try to appeal to their estate, but you won't get the money out of them. His point in verse 1 is simply this, that when you die, the law has no authority over you. Now, he's building an argument here. So when you die, it cancels responsibility to law. Law has no authority over you. Okay, then he gives us a picture of it. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, and he gives us a picture here. In verses 2 and 3, he speaks about marriage, and he says in verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Now, this was both Roman and Jewish law. You know, the laws of marriage, that if, if a woman is married to a man, and while he's still alive, she leaves him and moves in or moves to marry another man, she is breaking the law. She's bound by this law of marriage uh, to remain married to him and not to move in with somebody else. But if he dies, then she is free from the bonds of the law. She's, she's free from this marital vow. She's free to marry again. So death brings about a freedom for her. A sad freedom, perhaps, but it brings about a freedom. Now, I, I would just throw in this interpretive note you know, you wouldn't probably want to go to this text uh, to develop your primary source of handling the complex questions of marriage and divorce and remarriage. It, it does speak to the permanence of marriage, but I want you to see, at least, at least for interpretation purposes, Paul is using the marriage as an example to how the Christian relates to the law, and he's not giving us a teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage, per se. So here's what you have in the first three verses. Paul is simply saying, listen, death annuls the law. Death brings about a freedom from the bonds of the law. 
Okay, so now he's going to apply this. He's, he's painted a, he's, you know, he's given us a principle, he's given us a picture of it, and now he's going to go into the practice of what do we do with this. And look with me in verse 4, please. He says, likewise, so you see that he's showing a parallel. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear the fruit of God. This is really interesting. The analogy, uh, the illustration from verses 2 and 3, it's not perfect. He's not drawing a perfect analogy. Paul's not writing some detailed allegory where all the points of the illustration are going to be met by a similar point in the application. What he's simply saying here is death cancels the law. So the law that you and I were under, the law of God, that is that, that sense of guilt and burden and shame, that we've broken the law, we've broken the law, that we have been freed from. We've been freed from that through a death. That is that we have died to the law. What he's speaking about here is an approach to God, uh, that we would naturally, in the old life, approach God by the law. Don't we do this? I mean, we feel closer or farther away from God often because of the things we've done or haven't done. And we feel the guilt and we feel the condemnation. We feel far from God when we sin deeply. And yet what Paul's saying is you've been freed from that. And the purpose of this freedom is to belong to another. In other words, he paints our relationship with Jesus in the context of a marriage. He says, you've been freed from the bonds of the law so that you could belong to Jesus. The question at the beginning, how do we relate to the law? We've been freed from it for the purpose of belonging to Christ. Have you ever thought about the Christian faith that way? About belonging to Jesus? I mean, many of you may have struggled in marriage. Maybe you're struggling right now in marriage or even in life. And yet, I love the way he paints this, you belong to him. In other words, the preeminent illustration of what it means to be a Christian is in the context of marriage. It, marriage isn't defined by rules, but it's defined by a relationship. And marriage isn't defined by law. It's really defined by love. And what he's saying here is, you've been freed from the law. In your approach to God, you don't need to come to God based upon law, but now based upon the love that you have, that union with Christ is how we approach God. And this is immensely freeing, particularly if you're like me. My temperament is more of an older brother type. I, I like laws. They're measurable. I can see where I am based upon law. But this frees me from the bondage, the condemnation that I feel over sin. It doesn't lead me to sin because it leads me to Christ. And my approach to him is now based upon this union that we have. We have been wed to Christ. And what I love, if you notice in verse 4 when he says, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. There is no end to this union. You will pass from this life, but you'll never pass from this union. That we've been freed from the law through death to be wed to Christ. Okay, that's the first purpose. This is the, the application of why Paul's saying you've been freed from the law. Do you see yourself as wed to Christ? Do you see that your approach to God now is through the merits of Christ? 
But there's another purpose that you see at the end of verse 4. The second purpose of being freed from the law is that you may bear fruit for God. You may bear fruit for God. Now, this isn't a parallel purpose. It's more sequential. You can't bear fruit for God until you are wed to Christ. Uh, Jesus says that, right, in John 15, 5. It's amazing how Paul's drawing from the teaching of Jesus. He says that I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so without being wedded to Christ, without being in union with Christ, we cannot bear fruit. But if you are in union with Christ, then you will bear fruit. It, it will be a natural response to the new relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. Now, what fruit is he talking about here? Well, if you notice in verse 6, and he just slides this in here, because, because Paul's going to pick up life of the Spirit in, in chapter 8, but he says <clears throat> excuse me, that, that we serve in a new way of the Spirit. So the fruit that we're bearing is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, many of you know the passage in Galatians chapter 5 where he says, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, right, faithfulness, loving kindness, gentleness. And here's what he says. And of, of these things, he says, of against such things, there is no law. You're freed from the law. So the person, the Christian that has been wed to Christ, will bear this fruit of the Spirit. What do I mean? Well, the fruit of love that you will find in yourself because of God's spirit and the work of Christ, that you will be able to love people who perhaps are not so lovable. You will be able to act. You will be able to initiate acts of love. This would be fruit in your life, evidencing that you are in union with Christ. Or joy, that you will be able to sacrificially give of yourself to another happily because of your union with Christ that you will be at peace in your friendships, that you will strive to make peace. We're not, we're not keeping peace like the United Nations may seek to keep peace, but we make peace. We unilaterally, even if we're the offended party, we're moving towards the reconciliation of our relationships or kindness or faithfulness, faithfulness that you're, you're, you're being faithful about what you say, that your words are truthful, and when you over-exaggerate or you lie, that you repent. You know, this is the fruit of the Spirit. What he's saying here is that you're not under the law. It doesn't lead to sin. It leads to a life of fruitfulness that's evidencing to you you have been wed to Christ. That's why he's freed us from the law, so that we can now be remade in the power of the Spirit. And this evidence of transformation is for us testimony that we've been wed to Christ. Now, just individually for a minute, Look at your life. Uh, do you see this fruit of the Spirit? Do, do you see that your union with Christ is giving birth to love and to peace and to patience and to long-suffering and to loving-kindness and to mercy? Do you see that in your life? You know, I, I think the joy about being a Christian is we get to reflect God to the world. That, that we get to display this fruit because we are reflecting to a world what God or who God is. You know, God is invisible. You cannot see God. But God makes himself visible through his people that he is slowly transforming into the image of his son. And so we get the opportunity to display through our fruit to the world. 
And then, and then he calls us together in a church so that collectively our fruit would be sweet to the world. Listen, the church has long not displayed the fruit that it ought to have displayed. The world has enough fault finders. The world has enough record keepers. That's not us. He's calling us to bear fruit that we would make this invisible God visible by the way that we love, we have joy, the fruits that come out of our life because we are abiding in Christ and he is abiding in us. That's kind of the whole lesson of the passage. It's, it's that simple. You have been freed from sin because Christ died to it. And now you've been freed from the law. You've been freed from the law so that you might be wed to Christ and bear fruit in your life. I would ask you to ask yourself, do you see that fruit? And if not, why not? Have you been wed to Christ? Have you rooted your faith in Christ? You know, he shows us in verses 5 and 6, he returns to this idea, and he wants to show us how we actually have been freed. He's told us the purpose of being free, but now he shows us how. Look with me in verse 5, because he does a before and after picture again. In verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, to bear fruit for death. So what Paul's saying is before you were converted, this was your life. You were ruled by the sinful passions. That word actually, by the flesh, it's a Greek word. It doesn't mean flesh like my flesh hanging on my bones. It doesn't even mean my body. As if the body's not bad, the body is good. God made the body, so it was very good. It's talking about those passions in us those sinful desires, those, tempt, th those urges that we have to take us off track. And what he's saying here is, while you lived in the flesh, while you lived in those sinful passions that were aroused by the law. Let me explain that just briefly. The law of God does reveal sin, and it does judge sin. But the law of God actually arouses or stimulates sin. In fact, in the next section, it says it produces it. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, the way we are as people, we are naturally rebellious to the things of God. And so when you see the law, it almost moves you to want to go against it, right? I mean, so you're walking down the hall, and you see a sign that says, do not touch wet paint. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I've touched the paint a lot. I just want to see if it's dry. But, but you, you, you just want to touch the paint. Or don't walk on the grass. That happens to be where my foot needs to go right now. I want to walk on the grass. We, we have this impulse to go against what we're told to do. But don't we see this in the first parents? I mean, he gives them all the trees of the garden. Listen, eat and just enjoy all of this. I want that one. That's the one I want. The one that I'm not supposed to have, that's the one I want. You know, Augustine was a, a, a bishop of the church back in the 4th century, really probably one of the greatest thinkers of the Western world. And in his book, Confessions, he kind of gives a testimony of how he comes to faith in Christ and life in Christ. And he was quite a rebellious youth, a bit of an instigator and a troublemaker. And here's what he writes about, you know, he's, he's probably mid-40s at this point, and he writes and he reflects on his heart about a, about a time that he was a thief. And here's what he says. He says, we carried off a whole, a huge load of pears. 
not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. There's something about forbiddenness that is so attractive to us. You know, when we look at our past life, I'm thankful for Christianity because I think Christianity presents a realistic view of life. It help, even if you're not a Christian here, it does explain why we do the things we do. It does give a, at least a reasoning <clears throat> as to why we don't do the things we need to do and why we do the things we really ought not to do. It shows us why we struggle in this life so much. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in, in uh, London in the mid-20th century, and, and he says this. It's really important for us to get this. If we don't understand the nature of sin, I think we really miss the mark on the gospel. And here's what he writes. He says, he says the real trouble with the non-Christian is that they don't understand the truth about sin. They have a moral code. They believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, but they don't understand sin. The moment you understand the true nature and character of sin, you become troubled about your soul and you seek a savior. So anyone who is not seeking a savior doesn't understand the true nature of sin. It's the peculiar function of the law to bring such an understanding to your mind and conscience. And what Paul is saying is here, we were, we were living in this flesh. We didn't understand. But notice in verse 6 what he says. He says, but now we are released from the law. We've died to that which held us captive. So we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. But now, I love those but now. There's been a change through the spirit of God that we're now released from the law. We're released from being under the burden of the law. All the times you feel condemned, for the Christian, all the times you felt condemned and a failure, you are released from that standard by which you were so pushed to the ground over. You're released from that because you died. And this is the point of why chapter 7, 1 to 6 is really part of chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, God has says, this is why you've been baptized into the death of Christ. With Christ, you died. And you died not just to the penalty and the power of sin, but you died to the law as a means of appealing to God. You died. And we see that in all the illustrations. There are two illustrations in 6, 1 and 7. You have baptism. You go down into the water, picturing a death to the old self, and you come out new. Or the second illustration in the second half of chapter 6, you were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. And then the third illustration is marriage, that now you're no longer married. You're free to belong to the one who died for us. Uh, so that's really the, the bulk of this passage is for the Christian here, for the non-Christian, you have to deal with this idea of why do I do the things I do and I, I don't do the things that I ought to do. But for the Christian here, by faith, you died with Christ. And so you died to the dictates of the law. And now you're freed to belong to him, to love him, to live for his glory and to bear the fruit that comes out of that. It's really the message. You have a new life ahead of you. All because of your union with Christ. So let me just give you a few takeaways that maybe you can think about, perhaps talk with a friend or a spouse, 
Uh, the first would be that it really changes the way we view God. I hope it does. And that many of us here, as I've kind of already testified, I have a, an older brother temperament, um, and that is referencing the prodigal son and the one who wanted to keep the rules and thinking by doing that, God would be happy with them. Uh, it really changes the way we view God because if you struggle that way, if you, if you tend to go in the direction of, if I read my Bible and if I if I, you know, if I pray often and if I give to the church and if I come to the church, then God will love me more. And I want to advance all those. Those are means of grace, by the way. Those are gifts of God to us through which we can grow to love him. But if we use those as markers for how much God loves me, uh, then what happens on the week that you don't read the Bible so much, you don't pray so much, or, or you move into areas of sin that you're regretful of? then what do you feel? You feel that weight begin to come on you, that crushing burden of the law. And, and what, what I think he's saying here is, you're released from that. I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying that our approach to God is no longer conditioned by law. In other words, in the Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament, uh, the uh, nation of Israel, uh, they would fail the law. They would come to the temple. They would be scared. They would have a sacrifice. They approached God via law. The Christian approaches God through his union or her union with Christ. So in other words, you don't look at God's love for you based upon you keeping an unkeepable law. You look the way God views you is he sees you in union with his son. So you know, the, you know that picture of the little kid in the field picking the petals off the flower. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You know, that's the way we often feel about God. And if you have a good week, then you feel close to God. And by the way, when you have a good week, you can also move toward self-righteousness toward those who don't have a good week. Or if you have a bad week, then you fall into despair. And do I really love God? Does God really love me? And there are, there are times that we need to question ourselves, no doubt. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. But I'm speaking about our approach to God. An approach to God is through the merits of Christ that we have access and full approach to God because of Christ. And, and so even if you're here and you're a Christian and you've been overwhelmed by sin this week or you feel guilty over failures, don't run back to the law, that old master, and say, well, I've got to start reading my Bible. I've got to start praying again. I've got to get my life cleaned up. Because God is, I feel far from God. Don't go to the old master. Run to Christ. Flee to Christ. And take all your stuff with you. Take all of it with you and throw it on him because he died for you. This is the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is we have one who has been a perfect substitute so that now the sins that we have just bathed in, they are his to bear. And we love him for it. He's been a good husband to us to bear for us all of our sin. So let it change the way, if you're intimidated by God, I don't want to diminish his holiness or his glory, but I want there to be a joyful reverence, not just a reverence, but a joyful reverence about approaching God because of Christ. It's the merits of Christ that put you at the foot of God. It will never be how close you can come to perfection of keeping the law. And then secondly, I would ask you that it might change the way you view the Christian faith. You know, he pictures the Christian faith as a marriage. You know, Christianity is not religious tokenism. It's not adding Christ to a, an already good life. It's not adding Christ 
you know, to try to fix me out of this jam. Uh, Christianity is much bigger than that. Uh, Christianity is pictured as a marriage. When you get married, everything changes. Everything does, or it should. I mean, when you get married, everything now, whether how I handle finances, how I handle our time, how I handle our, our, our friendships, everything changes. And now everything is between you and your spouse. It's not, I don't make decisions unilaterally anymore because I'm married. And so Christianity has that colossal effect on us, that, that it changes the way we look at life. We look at Christ. There are responsibilities. There, I don't deny that. There are, but they're not duties. They're more acts of devotion. You know, what binds me to Carol? I am bound to my wife, uh, not by law, although there are marital laws, and I'm not bound by... I'm not bound to Carol based upon my marriage license, although we applied for a license. I'm bound to her because I love her. And and I've used this example because I just think it's the simplest one to use, that I love her. And this is what Thomas Chalmers, he was a Scottish theologian of the 19th century. He wrote an article once, it was the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. You know, when you develop a new affection, it has a power to push the old affections to the side. You may have been distracted by 50 loves out there, but when one perfect love comes, all the other 49 fade away. They fade away compared to that one love. It pushes them out of the room. And this is why I keep referencing that great line of Augustine, love God and do what you want. If you love Christ, then rules flip to, no, it's a relationship we're talking about. It's not laws, it's about love. And so it changes the way we look at Christianity. It's not a list of rules and regulations. You may have been raised that way, and and many of us have. But I just want to be the one to say it's not that way. Christianity is based upon this idea that God in mercy through faith has united us with Christ in a new relationship that will last forever, and it brings us to the Father totally forgiven and clean and happy, all because of Christ. So he becomes the center point. It's not a religion, but it's a relationship with him that we have. And then the third thing I I hope it changes is the way you look at the law, the way you look at the law. You know, the, the law is spoken about in very glowing terms in the Old Testament. Read Psalm 119, read Psalm 19. The law is sweeter than the honeycomb. It gives wisdom and and wisdom, it gives wisdom to the foolish. It gives sight to the blind. What do we do with the law? Because in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul's going to say Christ is the end of the law. So what do we do with the law? How do we handle the law? That was really the question I raised at the beginning. Do we deny it? Are we obliged to live under it? Well, I can't do any better than J. or um John Stott, he says this about the law. He says, is the law still binding on the Christian? The answer is no and yes. No in the sense that our acceptance before God doesn't depend on it. Christ in his death fully met the demands of the law so that we're delivered from it as a means of salvation. It no longer has any claims on us. That is to condemn us for sin. You'll never bear the weight of the law over your life. He says, it is no longer our Lord. But yes, in the sense that we serve, the motive and the means of our service have altered. Not because the law is our master and we have to obey, 
but because Christ is our husband, and we want to. In other words, the law says do this and live. The gospel says live and do this. So the law becomes a guide to us, not a master constantly recording every error that you've ever made in your life. We are released from that, and I praise God for it. But the law does reveal God to me, and so it, it guides and it directs me, but it doesn't master me. So I hope it changes the view of the law. We don't chuck it out. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we don't let it rule us. And we don't sit at the end of our day and say, oh God, I did this and this. Repent, absolutely, and confess your sins. But confess your sins with an eye trained on the husband, Jesus, who has paid for every last one of them and then run into the arms of God because of Christ. And, and feel free. Even, don't clean yourself up. Go right to him with everything you have. So, so look at your lives this afternoon and, and ask yourself, you know, is there fruit being born? Is that fruit of the Spirit? Is that transforming take place? It's incremental. It's in fits and starts. It doesn't happen in a day. And it doesn't work on this perfect incline. There's a lot of fits and starts. But, but, but are you changing? Are you growing? Do you have a greater love for God now than you did last year? you have a greater joy in the things of God? And if not, ask God for grace, that, that he, would, he would vivify you, he would give you life again, that he would, he would cause you to be filled with the Spirit, that this new way of the Spirit you would walk in the power of God. Let's take a minute and just perhaps confess our sin or thank God for his grace in your life. Rejoice in the freedom, and then I will just... I will close this in prayer in just a minute.